If you'll turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. I was speaking with someone this week and trying to remember when it was we started the preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. You realize it's been two years? We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for two... We started Matthew when COVID started, and we're just now in chapter 16. It's an amazing thing how God's Word is so rich that it takes a long time to really even just begin to soak in the richness of His Word, isn't it? And so far I've had no one come to me and say, Pastor, we're bored with the Gospel of Matthew, move on. No one said that yet. So that's a beautiful sign that this congregation, you you soak in, you love God's Word, and it's never boring. Amen. Amen. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Mm, Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we praise you for your word. We also praise you, Father, for revealing yourself to us through your word, but also in the present. If we were just aware and attentive, we would see you, We would hear you. We would know your presence. But God, many times like these Pharisees and Sadducees, we are blind because we're not attentive and we miss what you are saying. We are miss, we miss who you are. We miss what you're doing. So God, today as we, we listen to you speak through your word, through this interaction with your son, Jesus Christ, and these Pharisees, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to hear clearly, that you would cause us to see your hand at work clearly. Help us, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Now, Jesus, he points out an amazing thing in this passage in regard to the blindness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see some of that here? I mean, think about these learned men of the Torah, these learned men of the Mosaic law. These two two groups, they they battled one another for political control of Israel. You realize that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, were, they, they were kind of two political parties, kind of like Democrats and Republicans. Seriously, that's the best, the best way to think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were on two opposite ends of the political spectrum within the religious structure of, of Israel. But these learned men, it, they were battling for political control, but they could see the beauty of the, the creation. They could see the beauty of the physical sky, the idea of the heavens. But they were blind to the beauty of God's sovereignty here. They were blind to the times, as Jesus was saying. They were blind to what God himself was doing, how he was fulfilling his covenant. They demanded a sign from heaven from Jesus. But they could not see the truth of who Jesus was. They could not see the truth of the kingdom of heaven that was right in front of them. 
How many of us have been guilty of that? I, it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that, that many struggle with the same spiritual blindness. Many, we do. We, we struggle with spiritual blindness. We, we often focus on the everyday reality in front of us. We focus on the everyday problems that we deal with. But we totally miss the voice or the hand of God. I see a lot of heads nodding in affirmation. We're, we're just as guilty as these Pharisees and these Sadducees. We often focus on the wrong thing. When God's voice is speaking, when His hand is moving, it should be plain that He is doing a great thing right in front of us, that He's doing something right in front of our line of vision, and somehow we miss it. Now, I think Jesus' reaction here to these Pharisees are going to help us see some response to this. Matthew 16, this chapter, has been called by scholars the high point in Jesus' ministry. And here's why. Because Jesus speaks about His church in this chapter. This is the first time we see Jesus use that language of calling His church. We're going to see that later as we get into verse 18, as Jesus is speaking about Peter, or speaking with Peter, in verse 18 of chapter 16, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel is really the first time we see that language of my church coming from the voice of our Lord. Matthew 16 begins as Jesus, remember at the end of verse uh, chapter 15, he leaves the, the Decapolis region. He leaves the Canaanite Gentile region by sailing in a boat along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And now, at, remember at, at 15 verse 39, after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So now in chapter 16, we're taking up where he, where he comes to. He's, he and his disciples are in a boat along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and they come to this region of Magadan. Now, the Canaanite region that he was in was in the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, and now in chapter 16, the region of Magadan is on the western shore. So you can kind of, if you think of a, a sea, he's kind of gone a, a, around uh, over the arch down to the west. Now, Jesus, and when he gets here, he's coming back to the, uh, the Galilean territory where the Pharisees and the Sadducees meet him. So he's left the Gentile region, and now in chapter 16, he's coming back into the Galilean region, and guess who's waiting for him? Can you picture that? Jesus departed from there to get away from them, and now he's coming back right into the midst of the fire. Won't even let him get out of the boat before they ask him questions and attack him. It's kind of, you can kind of see that. So, but now, now this scene here in Matthew 16, if you're taking notes, is also retold in the Gospels of Mark and the Gospels of Luke. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, and, and actually Luke chapter 11, and actually Luke chapter 12. I'm going to be referencing some of these passages throughout the, the today, but if you're taking notes, you're going to see this same scene recounted in other gospel accounts. Let's think about the cultural context here. The region of Magadan. I, even although it's within the Galilean territory, Magadan was an area known... It was a strong Hellenized region. It was a region where Jew, Jewish people were more Greek in their culture than they were Jewish. That's what it means to be Hellenized. 
Remember that Jesus, he just departed from the Canaanite region, and now he returns to this area that's, that is largely populated, populated by Hellenized Jews. This means that the Jewish people here in Magadan, they embrace the Greek culture and the Greek worldview. So in chapter 16, this, Matthew now continues to show us that Jesus' ministry continues with the outcasts from Jewish culture. So we have, but we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees here. It was a strong, this, this area of Magadon is a strong fishing territory. Again, along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, but south of Capernaum. Remember Capernaum? That was where Jesus, much of Jesus' ministry was based out of. And it was an area known for, there were a lot of freshwater springs in Magadon. They were known for this. Um, it was, it was a favored region for Jesus' ministry. Um, one at which he was able to reach large crowds. Whenever he was in this area, large crowds would gather. Jesus, he liked this area. And so the other thing to know here that in this region of Magadon, there was the village of Magdala. You know somebody in scripture that that sounds like? It, It was in the southern part of the territory. Mary Magdalene came from Magdala. She was from this area. Uh, her name literally Mary the Magdalene. This is where she was from, okay? We, we read about that mostly in Matthew 27. Remember, Mary Magdalene, she was one of the Marys that went to the tomb of Jesus. You see, this, so I'm just kind of giving some cultural context of where we are in chapter 16, okay? Now, let's look here at verse 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Not just any sign. Jesus, give us a sign from heaven. Here Matthew tells us that these Pharisees and these Sadducees had a clear motive in challenging Jesus. What was it? To test him. We see this often in the Gospels, don't we? It's every time, just about every time the Pharisees and or the Sadducees interact with Jesus, there is an intent to test him. Why? They wanted to test and see if Jesus was genuine. That's what we see here in verse 1. So Matthew's Gospel shows us Many confrontations between these religious elite. Fr- now, remember, where were these religious elite from? Back in chapter 15, verse 1. Y'all remember? From Jerusalem. They had to come all the way from Jerusalem to here. They were the best of the best. And there they were. They, they saw his growing popularity, remember? And they sought to discredit him for fear of losing their own political control. This nobody from Nazareth is stirring the pot and causing them trouble. That's why they wanted to come and test him. Now, if you remember in John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel, one of the twelve, when Jesus calls him, Nathaniel's response to Philip was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the attitude of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who is this Nazarene who knows so much and is claiming to be the Messiah? They come to test him. Because nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Y'all know a town around here that you say nothing good can come from there? I'm not going to get in trouble by mentioning any, but that's the mindset. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, remember that they asked Jesus directly. They wanted a sign from heaven. Now, what type of sign did these men really want Jesus to provide? Let's, Let's understand what they were thinking here. In Jewish tradition, to speak of something from heaven was the same as to speak of something from God. So literally, a sign from heaven would be a sign from God. That's what they were looking for. 
But notice what Jesus does in this interaction. He actually shows them what they're really seeking. Let's take a look. They clearly did not trust Jesus. They were arrogant and prideful, and they saw Jesus and his rise in popularity as a rabbi of the people, and they were threatened by it. But but they must have struggled to see Jesus as he gained his popularity. They struggled with this. So they, they wanted to discredit him. I mean, their idea of serving God, think about this. They focused on themselves and what was real in the present moment. Here's the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees defined their piety on their own obedience to the Mosaic law and to the traditions. That was the Pharisees. If you obey the law, if you keep the traditions, then you're good with God. But the Sadducees, they define their piety a little differently. Here's the difference between the two. The Sadducees define their piety through self-indulgence and honestly personal pleasure. The Pharisees argued for the resurrection of the dead. They were known for that, but the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection at all. You see the two political tensions here. The Sadducees, instead of believing in any kind of afterlife or resurrection, instead they argued for this life is all that there is. That was where the Sadducees were coming from. Some of you, I see some lights going off in some of your eyes here. Does this sound familiar? See, these ideas in our current culture are not new. Okay? Actually, the Sadducees, you could argue, practiced a form of hedonism. Not to the extreme that the Greeks did, but for them to live life is to live to its fullest now because that's all there is. There's nothing beyond what is here in the physical, so they argued, let's make the most of it. Not sinfully necessarily, but we everything we, we do to honor God is in the now and in the present. Whereas the Pharisees argued for a resurrection, which indicated an eternal life or an afterlife. You see the differences here? This is important because when we see what Jesus, how he responds, he's going to play on this. He's going to correct their error here. So it was not uncommon for the prophets, think about this, to call down signs from heaven. The Pharisees and Sadducees were really, they were practicing here a little bit of what they saw in the Old Testament prophets. When we look at 2 Kings, actually, there's a story for, about King Hezekiah that you'll find in 2 Kings chapter 20, Isaiah chapter 38, and 2 Chronicles 32. The same narrative in all three of those books. Here's a little Bible trivia. Did you realize that the Old Testament history books often repeat many of the same stories? The book of the Kings, the book of the Chronicles, and even Isaiah, because Isaiah and many of the prophets were interacting there in those stories too. So King Hezekiah, this story was in all three of these books. King Hezekiah asked Isaiah the prophet for a sign to verify that God's promise was true. So the idea of calling for signs from heaven has a has an Old Testament precedent. So these Pharisees and Sadducees, in their mind, they were doing what the Old Testament prophets did. Okay. King Hezekiah here, what was his problem? He was ill, deathly ill, very sick. And Isaiah actually comes to him and Isaiah tells him, the Lord says, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Y'all know the story? 
Again, 2 Kings chapter 20, Isaiah 38, and 2 Chronicles 32. If you want to go back and study these deeper, Hezekiah was going to die. Yet, we see in this narrative that Hezekiah humbled himself before the Lord, prayed, and wept. And then God told Isaiah, because Isaiah was leaving the palace, turn around, Isaiah, go back to Hezekiah, I have heard his prayer, and I will have mercy upon him. Not only will I have mercy upon him and make him well, I'm going to add 15 years to his life. That's the story. But Hezekiah, even in hearing this from the prophet Isaiah, says, how do I know this is going to happen? I need a sign from heaven. And God gives it to him. And what was the sign? He asked that at the house of the Lord, the shadow that comes down the steps, think about it, you would watch the sun move in the sky and the shadow, you always know the pattern of the shadow. You know where it's going to go. So the shadow would creep down the steps. Well, Hezekiah said, that's too easy. I want to see the shadow recede. That was his request. That was a specific sign from the Lord. And what does God do? He gives it to him. That's the story. The reason I share that is because there is an Old Testament precedent for asking for signs from heaven. So what's the problem here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? (laughs) They wanted to see a sign from heaven. But their ideas could not rise above the physical now. That's the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their idea of religion, their idea of how God works could not go beyond the now. They limited their worldview. They limited their religious thinking to the physical now. How do I obey the law now? How do I keep the traditions now? How do I enjoy life to the fullest now? They could not think beyond the here and now. That's the problem. If all that there is exists in the physical reality now, then the sign that these men expected at best was a physical sign from the heavens that we call the sky. Not the heavens where God is. And Jesus knew this. That's the, the sign from heaven in their minds was a sign in the here and now, not from the eternal realm of heaven that Jesus knew that where God is, that's the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees asking for a sign from heaven. And Jesus saw this. You understanding where we're headed here? Some of you are, I see it, I see it going in your head like it's cranking and some of you are going, I don't know about that. I think that, I think there's some truth here to this. Okay. So let's look here at verses two and three. Let's see why Jesus responds. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. Verse three. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You see, you could actually take verse three and connect how Jesus responds using sky and and heavens. And now in comparison to the question in verse one, a sign from heaven. 
they were confusing what that was. And Jesus is pointing out, here's what you're thinking, guys. Your idea of heaven is what you see. Yet there's something happening that is unseen, that you're blind to. See the problem? The significance of this illustration that Jesus gives about the red sky in verses 2 and 3 reveals Jesus' point about how to interpret the signs of God. The Gentiles in Matthew 15 verses 21 through 30 that we looked at for the last few weeks, these Gentiles saw the signs and the miracles of Jesus as evidence of the God of Israel among them. And so how did Jesus respond to them? With favor, healings, mercy, breaking of the bread. Because even these Gentiles, they could see beyond the physical now. They saw the God of Israel was among them. But these Jewish religious leaders here in chapter 16, these religious leaders who studied the Mosaic law intently, they were blind to the eternal unseen signs of the kingdom of heaven that was right there before them. And Jesus says, here's what you're really asking for. Understanding the creation is not the same as understanding the creator. And Jesus' example here to these men, I think, shows their ignorance of what they propose to be experts about. One, can, I mean, think about this. One can confidently say that if the evening sky is red, fair weather follows. And how do you know that? By experience. Maybe the old timers tell you. Y'all ever deal with some old timers who know the signs of the weather and all this stuff? A lot of times they're right. I'm not saying they're always right, but they're pretty close. Okay. Kind of like the woolly worms. Y'all know the woolly worms. You, you, you folks who are new to Tennessee, you know, if, if woolly worms, if, if, uh, this is later in the summer, you'll see this. Uh, if the woolly worms have a lot of black on them, it's going to be a bad winter. If they have a lot of brown on them, it's going to be a mild winter. If you have bands of black and brown, then it's, you're going to have seasons of bad and, and seasons of nice. You see how you got to watch the signs, correct? Some of y'all are grinning because you know what I'm talking about. We, in other words, what Jesus is pointing out here is that you can watch the signs of the seasons. You can watch the signs of the sky, but you miss the greater eternal unseen reality that's right before you. The condemnation from Jesus is pretty strong here. Look at the latter half of verse 3. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. I'm right here in front of you. I am God incarnate. I am His Son right here in front of you. The, the hand of God is at work, miracle after miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching after teaching, and you're missing it. So what he's saying is really the demand of a sign is misguided because you're not asking for a true sign from heaven. You're asking for a sign in the here and now, and I'm not going to give it to you. Problem there, isn't it? See, this demand for a sign from Jesus was to prove who he was. And let's just face it, it was an annoying fact of Jesus' ministry. It was an annoying fact. We see Jesus responding to these idiots, and I'm going to be really, that's, that's nice language for them. He's responding to them because they are so closed-minded. You are ignorant to the reality before you. I'm not going to fool with you. 
because you're arrogant in your own self and you think you have your own answers. So this was an annoying fact for him. And the Pharisees demanded a sign from Jesus. Let's look, I mean, we see it all throughout the Gospels. They demanded a sign from Jesus back in Matthew 12, uh, verses 38 through 42. We looked at that a long time ago. And they wanted to prove that he was not a prophet of Beelzebul. Here in Matthew 16, they demand a sign to prove that Jesus was a prophet of God. A prophet sent from the authority of heaven. So uh, deeper here, there's a question of authority. Jesus, are you truly under the authority of our Father God in heaven? But their interpretation of heaven missed the truth. They were blind to the reality in front of them. They were blind to the eternal unseen truth of heaven. Now let's look here at verse 4. And and here's I mean this is continuing Jesus' rebuke. He was, he's rebuking them further here. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So let's try to unpack this here. This is the other part of this interaction that we need to look at. Jesus often called out the sign of Jonah to the evil and adulterous generation. It's not the first time he says this. He'll say it again in the, in the Gospels as well. Now, some translations speak of the wicked and adulterous nation. I don't, I like, I like the idea of wicked rather than, evil is a bad word, but I like the idea of wicked. We need to bring that back. You wicked, vile person. I think that's good. Okay. So the King James here says the wicked and adulterous nation whereas modern translations say evil and adulterous generation. Now, the meaning of this phrase is that the Jews were never satisfied with any signs from God. Even though they continually asked for them and continually demanded them, the history of the Jewish people was they never were satisfied with them. Whatever God said to them, whatever God responded to them with, they were still never satisfied. Oh, okay, well, okay, God, I see that, but I still don't trust you. Do it again. In other words, the Jews had a history here, <coughs> excuse me, of continually tempting God. Give us a sign, God. Give us a sign. Oh, I see that, but I'm not certain. Can you give us another one? It, can you imagine God having to deal with these people for generations after generation after generation? When are you going to believe me, he says. Why do you keep walking for signs? Why do you keep demanding things from me? Don't you see the truth here? There comes a point where God just, and Jesus is kind of throwing his hands up. I'm not going to fool with you. I've given you enough. You've seen the truth. What are you waiting for? How many people do you know like that? Jesus does not refer to these, quote, Jews as an adulterous generation. And I use the quote Jews because it's John's gospel. He refers to the Jews as the religious leaders. That's what we mean by this. Not the Jewish people, but these religious Jews. He refers to them as an adulterous generation merely because they demanded some kind of sign. And the Lord here, he, even though he often permits this of the pure-hearted, he condemned this generation because they deliberately provoked God. They were deliberately testing their Lord. Therefore, if they're deliberately provoking God, they're deliberately provoking Jesus, who is the Son of God, the Messiah. He's done with them. Jesus speaks here a prophetic truth that after he rises from the dead, he will be like Jonah. That's what this sign of Jonah implies. No sign will be given to this generation 
except the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah is referring to a resurrection. The only sign that this evil and adulterous generation would receive is just that. Mark's account, when we look um, in Mark's account, it does not mention that Jonah, but the scolding is the same effect. Here in Mark chapter 8, verse 12, here's how Mark recounts Jesus' words. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. There's an indication of how Jesus felt about these people. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. That's Mark's account in chapter 8. But but like their ancestors, the Jews who did not heed God's acts already done among them, this particular generation was evil. And that's that's how God speaks about His chosen people over and over again. This generation is evil. This generation is evil. We see it all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Even as Moses is laying down the law. The Lord says in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 5, They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Jesus is repeating the same idea here. Actually, in Deuteronomy 32, 20, same thing. And He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. So what Jesus is saying here in in Matthew 16, 4 is nothing new. It's an evil and adulterous generation. Repeating the same words of His Father from the very beginning. Nothing's changed. So signs had already been given to God's people. Think about this. If you were in slavery in Egypt and Moses comes and the power of God does all that He does, those ten plagues and you are actually encouraged to leave by the Pharaoh who kept you slavery? And actually, you realize this? Not only were you encouraged to leave the country, here, take all of our gold with you. Don't come back. And you still don't believe God? It's a common, a repeated theme. So the signs that had already been given to them, even clearer than God's usual signs from heaven like the red sky predicting weather patterns. But this final sign that Jesus is speaking about, this sign of Jonah, is going to prove Jesus' role as the Son of God. This resurrection would be the final sign that no one would be able to discredit or ignore. The sign of Jonah here, the first time that we see this reference in the Gospels was back in Matthew chapter 12. So let's read it. Matthew 12, verses 40 and 41. Let's go back to there. Because this was another time that Jesus interacted with these Pharisees. And He speaks about the sign of Jonah. And the words of Jesus will help us understand what He's talking about here. Matthew 12, verses 40 and 41. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So there is 
resurrection from the dead. There is also final judgment. Those are the two aspects of the meaning of the sign of Jonah. And notice that the words of our Lord here, resurrection will be the final sign revealing who Jesus is, why Jesus did what he did, and from whom Jesus did these wonderful things. Now, Matthew uses the phrase after three days and on the third day. This is an echo of of the tradition of Jonah. And clearly, the religious elite who studied the prophets would have understood this tradition of Jonah. And, and, And this is confirmation that Matthew understood Jesus' resurrection as this sign from Jonah. Jonah was pointing to Christ. His three days in the belly of the fish, and he's coming out of the fish to give warning to Nineveh. That echo, I mean, that, that foreshadowed and pointed to Christ who would do the same. So after the resurrection would be this judgment. Here's the second part of the tradition of Noah. Judgment for the evil and adulterous generation that Jesus is talking to as it was for the citizens of Nineveh. Although they repented, see, the citizens of Nineveh, although they repented under Jonah's ministry, we forget that a hundred years later, there was another generation of Nineveh that came up, and they rebelled again and were wiped out by God's judgment, and the prophet Nahum tells us about that. See, sometimes we forget that at the end of the book of Jonah, Nineveh repented. Hallelujah. But then a hundred years later, another generation comes along and Nahum the prophet says, this generation will go. So the Ninevites repented and God relented. We see that in Jonah chapter 3. The Jews here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, do not repent and they would face harsher judgment than the Ninevites did. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Here's the sign of Jonah, Pharisees and Sadducees you're going to be judged more harshly than the Ninevites were. They repented at least. You're too arrogant and prideful. You're blind. See, the book of Jonah focuses on a rebellious prophet that received mercy and judgment. Now, now reading the prophecies of judgment in the minor... See, has anybody ever really read the, the 12 minor prophets? They're very short books. I mean, that might be a good summer study sometime. We might just go through the minor prophets. When you read those, man, that's depressing. Let's just be honest. If you read, when you read the minor prophets, you're going, man, I am unworthy. God hates me. He's going to condemn me. He's going to wipe me out. Oh, where's the hope? Right? Now, the, but, the, but see, see, Jonah is a minor prophet. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. The book of Jonah, focuses on a rebellious prophet who receives mercy, but is also judged. So reading the prophecies of judgment in the minor prophets, I mean, it can cause the teachers of Israel here, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to have a wrong understanding. After all, the promise of Abraham was that the nations would be blessed through him. Remember Genesis chapter 17? Part of the Abrahamic covenant was the nations will be blessed by you, Abraham. And we've seen in the prophets many examples of Israel being judged for its wickedness time and time again. So there's no inherent delight here in the judgment of those who give themselves to wickedness. 
What's happening right in front of them is that the nations are seeing the the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus is speaking to the Gentiles. And the, pro, and, the, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees missed it. I mean, there's no inherent delight here in judgment. Jonah, in wanting to see Nineveh destroyed, remember that? Even after they repented, Jonah, you remember his reaction to, wait a minute, they actually listened to my message? Come on, God. You remember that? Jonah wanted to see Nineveh destroyed, and this represents a natural inclination in Israel. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they, they carried on this aspect of Jonah. They wanted to see the Gentiles destroyed. And as it is, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they missed the point of what Jesus was doing. Jonah deserved to be judged. And Jonah actually deserved to be destroyed because he disobeyed the divine commission to proclaim judgment to Nineveh. What did Jonah do? He flees. When God calls him to Nineveh, what was his first reaction? Uh Uh-uh. He finds a ship that goes the opposite direction. But yet, God had mercy on him. The large fish that swallowed Jonah was the means of his salvation. He saw that salvation was of the Lord and that those who called to him in their distress, as he did in the belly of the fish, were saved by the Lord's mercy. Therefore, the same thing. We see the three days in the pit of hell by our Savior Jesus Christ. Same thing. It's the means of our salvation. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are missing it. Therefore, God the Father, doesn't He? He deserves praise and He deserves thanksgiving. And these Pharisees and Sadducees were not praising and giving thanks to their Lord. They were questioning Him and challenging Him rather than praising Him and thanking Jesus for the salvation message that He's preaching and the salvation that He was offering. I mean, think about this. God Himself, He reigns from His holy temple in heaven. And these men, they ask for a sign from heaven, but the sign from heaven that God gives is the death, burial, and resurrection of who? His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the sign that will come. And these Pharisees and Sadducees wanted a different sign because they were blind. The sign that God gives from heaven is the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. And where does He establish the kingdom of heaven? It's in the humble and repentant hearts of sinful humanity. That's where the kingdom of heaven is. God makes His sovereign reign over all things very plain. Not only to Jonah by bringing up a storm among the sea, but also to all of humanity all the time. In other words, Romans chapter 1, there is no excuse. Just think about it. Jonah was on this ship in the middle of the sea running from God, and God himself causes a storm to come. I wonder if Jonah and the seamen on the ship saw a red sky before the storm came. The Pharisees and the Sadducees could see the red sky and predict what was coming. See, the sovereign Father God that we have in heaven, 
He is compassionate. He is merciful. He is relenting from judgment when people repent. That's repeated all throughout Scripture. Jonah here, the sign of Jonah, reminds us that God is good and that he longs to save and that his salvation extends to the ends of the earth, even to the Gentiles who Jesus was ministering to with signs and wonders. You see how Jesus is bringing this all together. Jonah and all the people of God, even the Pharisees and Sadducees, should rejoice in this salvation. This is Jesus' warning to the adulterous and evil generation. Are we missing the signs? Are we missing what God is doing? Are we even missing the truth of God's Word? It's been revealed. It's been spoken. Jesus died. He spent three days in the belly of hell. He came home. Resurrected from the dead so that death no longer had power. Do we miss that? Do we miss the sign of the kingdom of heaven as it comes and it transforms hearts and lives? Are we like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Or are we more in line with Christ himself? That's the thing I think. I think that's the message here today, isn't it? Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Father God, I I pray this morning that you would cause this passage in Matthew 16 to just resonate in the hearts of all of us here who are listening. There, There really is no other sign that we can demand from you to expect to know who you are, to expect to know whether you love us or not, to expect to know even who Jesus Christ is. You have given all the signs necessary and you repeatedly show them to us all the time. But if we're like Pharisees and Sadducees, we're going to miss it because our focus is on the wrong thing. Lord, your eternal salvation is something that is unseen, yet still visible. That's an amazing truth. And so, God, I pray that you would not cast us into the evil and wicked generation, the adulterous generation who ignores you and abandons you. Cause us to see the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, the gospel message, the the hope of salvation through His death, burial, and resurrection. Father, help us to see that and embrace it and live it. I pray, God, for those who are hearing these words who do not see that truth, that Your Spirit would soften their hearts, enlighten their eyes, and open their ears so that they can hear and see and feel Your truth in Your presence. Lord, as we close today, I I just ask that you just do your mighty work in the hearts of all who are here. Forgive us and love us at the same time. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.